Good morning. Our scripture today is from Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like the, the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. <clears throat> but in an, op an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of God. Amen, church. Please go ahead and have a seat. Good morning to you all. It's great to be here this morning. Great to be worshiping with you. Great to be reading and studying God's word together. Who's heard of that phrase, like a deer caught in headlights? Been there? You know that to be true? You know, my, my dad loves to hunt, absolutely loves it. And growing up, he and I sometimes, around dusk, we would jump in the car just to drive around, just to see if we could spot deer. And the saying is true. Not all the time, but oftentimes when the headlights would, would strike the deer, they'd look up and they'd just freeze. And so we use that phrase in reference to people, and it means something to the effect of to, to catch them off guard, to sideswipe them. And perhaps you've been there when something crazy happens, there's a sudden incident, some piece of news, or someone says something you're not expecting, and you're just completely, you know? Well, something like that happens in our passage today. Actually, it happens a couple times in our passage today. 
We've been studying through the book of Mark, and we're actually in our passage this morning taking a break from the narrative that surrounds Jesus, and we're going to talk about how John the Baptist met his end, but we're going to be looking at it through, through, the, life of, or through, the, through the moment of Herod, through the actions of Herod. He's the character that we're focusing on this morning, and there's a couple times in our text that he's caught like a deer in headlights. See, what happens to him is a result of fear. Now, fear, you may have been picking up on this, fear is an ongoing theme throughout the book of Mark. We've been studying it, and it's been coming up regularly in the past couple of chapters. And this time, we see fear grip a ruler. He's not only caught off guard in the moment, but if you look closely at the life of Herod, he's actually caught off guard in a pattern of fear. His life is characterized by a pattern of of fear. So this morning, we're going to look at the pitfalls of fear, and specifically, we're going to see three things that can paralyze our walk if we're not careful. So I'm going to go back to Mark 6, 14, and I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. Please follow along as I read. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Here's your first pitfall of fear this morning. We fear the past. We fear the past. Mark starts off by saying these two words, King Herod. Now that's interesting because Herod was not technically a king. He's not Herod the Great who was alive when Jesus was born. This is Herod Antipas, one of Herod's sons, one of Herod the Great's sons. Herod the Great named all of his sons like Herod, kind of like George Foreman. (laughs) But Herod Antipas wasn't a king, he was a tetrarch. And you can think of that word tetrarch as more like a governor. After Herod the Great's death, Rome was divided into four parts, and Herod Antipas got the northern part of Palestine that included Galilee. Mark calls him king here probably as a loose term. It's a non-technical term, and he also could be using it ironically. See, we know from history that Antipas wanted the title king. He tried to claim that title, and that actually led to his downfall in A.D. 39. Now, we're told that Herod heard of it. What's the it here? Well, you might remember from last week, the disciples had been sent out by Jesus to preach, to heal, and to cast out demons. And so you might ask, well, is that the it? Is that what he's hearing about, that the disciples are going around doing these things? Well, actually, the Gospel of Matthew helps clarify that it's Jesus' fame that Herod hears about. He's hearing the stories that have been circulating about Jesus. He's hearing about the miracles. He's hearing about the teaching. He's possibly hearing about the crowds that have gathered around Jesus as Jesus is going around doing miracles and teaching. Jesus, let's face it, causes a stir. And the stir has gotten so far and so wide that it's now reached the ears of the ruler of the land. Jesus, of course, has caused such a stir that now rumors are spreading. Rumors are spreading, but they're not rumors about the validity of Jesus' power. You may remember that last week, 
when Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, it wasn't a rejection of the validity of his miracles. They didn't deny his authority. They didn't deny his teaching. They didn't deny the power of the miracles. They questioned the origin. Where did he get the ability to do these things? And that's the same issue we're dealing with here in verses 14 and 15. No one is denying Jesus' ability. No one is saying he's a charlatan. He's a con artist. No one's saying that. We're at a point in our story where Jesus' power is no longer questioned. In fact, his power has been accepted. He has done undeniable miracles. He has done things that have blown people's minds, and no one's questioning that. They're not questioning these crazy miracles. What they are questioning is the origin of these miracles, or said differently, they're questioning his identity. They're trying to figure out where where do these miracles come from, and it goes back to who Jesus is. This actually started, you'll remember, at the end of chapter 4, when the disciples said, after Jesus calmed the storm, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that's what we're dealing with here. See, we've established his power. That's not denied. You remember, even the Pharisees didn't deny the power. They just tried to explain that it came from Satan, which again relates to his identity. We go to Nazareth, and they're saying the same thing. Where did he get this power? We come to our text today, and people are saying all kinds of things about him. They're trying to pin down his identity so they can explain the miracles. And they're saying things like, he's John the Baptist, Raised from the dead. We'll get to that here in a minute. They're saying things like he's Elijah or he's one of the prophets. They're trying to draw conclusions about who Jesus is from anywhere and everywhere except from the mouth of Jesus himself who said way back in chapter one, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is why he can do what he can do and proclaim what he can can proclaim because he's the king. He's not a tetrarch. He's the king. He's divine. He's God. But no one seems to want to accept that. They want to explain it some other way. And you know, we see that same type of response in our day to day. Everywhere you look, you can find people trying to explain away the identity of Jesus Christ. He was just another man. He was just another prophet. Sure, he did good things. He was a peace lover. He was a revolutionary. And on and on the theories go, but these theories are inadequate. Because Jesus himself has already demonstrated who he is. The miracles and the teaching point to his identity. He is God. But the people aren't willing to believe that. What are they willing to believe? Let's look at some of the things that they're saying about him. They say, some say he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's one theory. Although, if you read your Bible, John the Baptist never did any miracles. Some saying he's Elijah. Now, that's an interesting one. The Jews were actually expecting Elijah to come back. Elijah, you may remember this, he was the great prophet who called down fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice in a contest between him and the prophets of Baal. And you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 18. Elijah also didn't physically die. 
He was taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot, and you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 2. But beyond that, God had promised in the Old Testament that he was going to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord, Malachi 4, 5. So the Jews were expecting Elijah to come, so it does kind of make sense here that they would connect Jesus with Elijah. It, might, it makes sense that they would say, here he is, just like God promised. And by the way, that promise in Malachi 4, 5 was fulfilled. Ironically, it was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Jesus himself says in Matthew 11, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So people are saying he's John the Baptist or he's Elijah or others claiming that Jesus is one of the prophets of old, like Jeremiah or Habakkuk. The point is, they were ready to assign any identity to him except the truth, that he's God. So this gets to Herod. Herod hears what Jesus is doing. He hears the rumors. He catches wind of what's going on, and he draws his own conclusion. He says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now, why would he say that? Why would he come to that conclusion? Because fear and guilt do crazy things. Fear and guilt make us irrational. And I propose to you that Herod is being irrational because he fears the past. He feels guilty about the past and his guilt leads to fear. And that's what guilt does. Guilt leads to fear because when we're guilty, we fear that guilt coming out or we're ashamed of whatever guilt we're feeling. So fear follows our guilt. Herod's conscience is pricked and he's fearing what he did in the past. But before we get to what Herod did, I want us to consider something. I want us to consider how we fear the past. I would dare say everyone here has things in their lives that they are ashamed of. Every one of you could point back to things that you've done, to things that you've said that you desperately wish you could take back. Your past mistakes could be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. They could be a couple of hours ago. You could have done something you were ashamed of right before you walked into this church. And perhaps you've let that fear paralyze you. Perhaps you've let that past mistake inhibit your relationship with God. Perhaps it even makes you irrational like Herod. Now, I want to say something. Sin is devastating. Sin destroys both the sinner and the sinned against. Sin hurts us. It hurts other people. And it's what caused our separation with God. So in one sense, this is good because sin needs to be taken seriously. You know, as it happens, this Friday, we're having our Good Friday service that we have every year. And what do we focus on? 
we focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's our sin that led him to sacrifice himself. It's our sin that put him on that cross. Think about it. If we had not sinned, Jesus would not have died. It's a somber time. It's a gut-wrenching time. And that's good We need to pause and consider the devastation of our sin. We need to remember what it did to our Savior. But my friends, we need not stay in that place. We need not wallow in our memories of what sin has done. We need not be overcome by guilt because of our past. We need not fear our past We need not let our past inhibit our relationship with God. Why? Because if you are a Christian, bought by the precious blood of Christ, then he has wiped the slate clean. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your past has been totally and absolutely forgiven. Psalm 103, 11 and 12 For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There is no exception to that promise. Christ clears away the sin, it's gone. So don't let your past inhibit your relationship with God. Don't let it inhibit your life. Don't let your past keep you from experiencing the freedom you have in Jesus. Don't let Satan's condemnation paralyze you from serving the way Christ has empowered you. And you might ask, well, how do I do this? I know the truth to be be true, but how do I do this? How do I practically overcome my fear of the past? You do this by reminding yourself daily of Jesus' victory. You celebrate the victory that Jesus had. You celebrate your salvation, and you do this by quoting Scripture to yourself. Scripture like Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We overcome our fear of the past by meditating on Scripture. We overcome our fear of the past by standing on the promises of God. Promises like 1 John 3.20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. That means that every fear and every doubt and every security that creeps in, we can trust that God is greater than those feelings because he knows all. He knows the very depths of our heart. He forgives all the sins that we have ever done. He is greater than all the feelings of condemnation that we have. So we need not be shackled to those feelings or to those fears because your Savior is greater. Believe in your Savior. Believe in his promises. Don't be ruled by the fear of your past. Be ruled by faith in your Savior. I said just a moment ago, don't fear your past because Jesus has wiped the slate clean. But that leads me to a question. 
Has Jesus wiped your slate clean? In other words, have you by faith accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you submitted to him that he is Lord? Do you believe that only by his death and resurrection can your sins be forgiven? Have you come to him? Do you want to come to him? I want to implore you today, if that does not describe you, don't leave today without making it right with Jesus. Don't leave today without confessing your sin and receiving his forgiveness so he can wipe the slate clean. If you have more questions on that, the elders will be standing up here after the service. Come. Don't be paralyzed by your fear. Come and talk to us. Herod, though, was paralyzed by his fear. Herod feared the past. Herod concluded that Jesus is actually John raised from the dead. Why does he think that? Well, if this was a movie, the picture would get fuzzy as we go to a flashback. Join me in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Our second pitfall of fear this morning, we fear the truth. We fear the truth. That sounds kind of funny, but we do. We fear the truth. Herod Antipas had arrested John the Baptist because John was preaching against Herod's marriage to his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, this would not only have been adultery, but it would have been incest. Herodias would have been Herod's sister-in-law. And John the Baptist preached against this, calling it what it was. It was sin. And we think of this kind of relationship today, we think of this as disturbing, which it is. And to the Jews, it would have been even more so because it was unlawful. In Leviticus 20, that chapter is all about sexually immoral relationships. And verse 21 explicitly forbids men to have intercourse with their sisters-in-law. Now, interestingly enough, even though it was written to the Jewish people, that didn't stop John the Baptist from applying it to a heathen Gentile like Herod. God's laws don't stop at God's people. The moral law extends to everyone. God's not going to let anyone get off because they were of this people group or because they lived in that time frame in history. No, God's moral law is universal. That means that an inappropriate relationship in the first century in Palestine is also an inappropriate relationship in 2023 in the great U.S. of A. Don't think that the Bible doesn't apply to you. Don't think that it's just an old, dusty book filled with antiquated ways. Time and culture do not change God's moral law. Now, there are some things in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled and we need not observe anymore. For instance, the eating of unclean animals. Somebody say, amen, I can have bacon. <laughs> we need not observe those things anymore. The Bible even clearly tells us that Jesus made all foods clean and we'll read about that in a couple weeks. 
But the moral law states what is right and wrong, and it does not change. When the Ten Commandments say, don't steal, that applies to us some 3,500 years after it was recorded. All that to say, John the Baptist spoke out against Herod's marriage to Herodias, and Herod didn't like that, so he locked him up. Now, Herodias, you gather from the text, she wants to take it further. She says she, it says she has a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and just do away with him altogether. But Herod refused to have him killed, and that's the only time in our text that we see Herod actually stand up for himself. The rest of the time, he is an utter weakling. And the passage tells us that Herod feared John because he was a holy man, referring to him being a prophet. And also it says something interesting. It says that Herod listened to John, that he enjoyed listening to John, but he was also confused about it. The text actually says, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, that word perplexed means to be at a loss or to be in doubt. Herod didn't know what to do with John's preaching. It was confusing to him, and yet Herod enjoyed listening to him. See, there's... There's something about the truth that's alluring. We're told Herod heard John, listened to him. We're not exactly told how he did that. Maybe he had John brought in from time to time. Maybe he crept down to John's cell and just listened from the side. We don't know. But as we read this, you get the sense that there's an inward battle inside Herod. He didn't like what John was accusing accusing him of. He was perplexed by John's preaching, and yet he enjoyed to listen to John. There is a fear and attraction to the truth here. And this second fear that we can have is the fear of the truth. Herod didn't like what John was saying and locked him up. There was fear in what John was saying, and people today also fear the truth. Why do they fear the truth? Well, in Herod's case, they don't want to give up the life they have. Think about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. He turned away and refused to follow Jesus. Why? Because he didn't want to give up his possessions. The text tells us he went away sorrowfully. All his possessions had a claim on his heart, and he wasn't willing to give them up. And the same rings true in our day. People don't want to give up the lives they have to follow Jesus. They fear the truth. Or they fear, maybe put it this way, they fear what following the truth might demand of them. Even if, like in the case of Herod and John the Baptist, there is an allure to the truth, there's something attractive about it, they still fear it and they fear completely embracing it. Josh McDowell writes about his testimony in his little book, More Than a Carpenter. He writes that as he was researching Christianity more and more, he began to mentally realize that it was true, but he didn't want to accept it. In his words, he writes, I didn't care if he did walk on water or turn water into wine. I didn't want any party pooper around. I couldn't think of a faster way to ruin a good time. So here was my mind telling me Christianity was true and my will was somewhere else. And that describes a lot of people in our day and age. They fear the truth. 
because they don't want Jesus to change their lives. They are happy with the way things are. Thank you very much. But you know, Christians can sometimes fear the truth too. They can fear to trust God, not by way of salvation, but by way of dependence. They can fear what God may call them to do. They may fear that if I put myself out there, if I take that step of faith in this area of my life, God may change something that I don't want him to change. For instance, the high school graduate who is fearful of trusting God and taking the next step into the world. Or the couple that senses God calling them to adopt or to move or to serve in the church. I'm comfortable. I don't want my life to change. We can fear the truth. Maybe put a different way, we can fear the call of God in some area of our lives. And perhaps you sense right now that he wants you to do something. Perhaps he wants you to speak to that person in your life about Jesus. Perhaps he wants you to pursue a small group. Perhaps he wants you to serve in Harvest Kids. And the question is, are you going to step out in faith or are you going to make excuses? What might God be calling you to do? Don't fear the truth. Don't be paralyzed by the truth. Trust your Savior. So back to Herod. In fear and perplexity and some amount of delight, he kept John in prison. All the while, Herodias is holding this grudge against John. She wants to put him to death, but she can't do anything about it until verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Our third fear this morning, we fear other people. Herod has a birthday party. He invites the nobles and the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, all these high-ranking officials. And at some point, Herodias' daughter comes in and entertains them by dancing Now we're told it's Herodias' daughter making a distinction between her and Herod. It's not Herod and Herodias' daughter, in other words. It's not his daughter. They were actually childless. So this is most likely Herod's niece because, as I said earlier, Herodias was Herod's sister-in-law. And after the dance, Herod is so pleased that he does something that is very reminiscent 
of King Artaxerxes and Queen Esther. Verse 22 says, And the king said to the girl, Ask for me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. By the way, in case you're wondering, that's a stupid thing to do. You might remember, actually, that King Artaxerxes does this same thing to Queen Esther. It wasn't a literal proposal. Now, Herod is not literally saying, I'll give you half my kingdom. In fact, Herod, being just a tetrarch and not a king, really didn't have the authority to give any part of his kingdom away because he really didn't have a kingdom. But regardless, what he is saying here, and this is understood by the audience, what he's saying is, ask me what you want and I'll give it to you. Now, the daughter seeks out her mom, Herodias, and asks her what she should ask for, and this is Herodias' moment. She tells her daughter to ask for the head of John the Baptist, and that, I mean, that's just truly awful. Can you picture doing that, asking for something like that? Not only is Herodias murdering a prophet, but she's leveraging her daughter to do it. This is sick. But interestingly enough, like mother, Like daughter, look how the daughter responds in verse 25. This is the daughter. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This girl is just as messed up as her mom. And the text gives every impression that she is eager to do this. She asks for this request, and not only that, she adds to the request. She's the one that says, I want the head on a platter. The mom said nothing about a platter. The whole family is messed up, and that was often the case with Roman royalty. What does Herod do? Verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, He did not want to break his word to her, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. We're told that Herod was exceedingly sorry. He was deeply grieved, but he was also a coward. He didn't want to lose face with his guests so he sends an executioner to do the job. Do you know what Jesus says about John the Baptist? In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And Herodias, without hesitation, orchestrates his death. The story closes with these words. When his disciples heard of it, this is John's disciples, not Jesus' disciples. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now that was a heroic thing to do. It was very dangerous because to try to acquire the body of an executed criminal could have caused them to be associated with the crime. But they took the risk and they honored the dead. John the Baptist didn't deserve this. But Herod, unable to get over his fear, sanctions John's death. Our last fear this morning, we fear other people. 
You've heard it said this way. It's the fear of man. The fear of man. The fear of man can incapacitate us to keep us from doing what God wants us to do. Herod feared for his reputation in front of his guests. If he had refused the girl her request, everyone in that room would have thought him weak. Don't forget that we are in an honor-shame culture. If you went back on your word, that was shameful, and Herod couldn't accept that. He feared the rejection of man. And everyone in this room fears the same thing. We fear man. Proverbs 29.25 reads, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You know, there have been times in my life that the fear of man has kept me from doing the right thing. There have been times in my life that the fear of man has kept me from witnessing for my Savior. And it's easy to be afraid of man. Why? Because we want to be accepted. We want to be a part of the in crowd. That's one motivation, but there's another motivation. Some fear man, but instead of agreeing and going along, they actually go the opposite. They take a stand against them. Have you ever met someone who was just always antagonistic, always up in people's faces about things? Now, I'm not saying this is the case every time, but I believe fear is a motivator even in that demonstration of anger. They fear being looked looked upon as weak, so they try to make themselves appear strong. It's still fear of man. And we all deal with this in one way or another. How do we overcome our fear of man? I read an article this week that talked about that very same thing, and it highlighted these three things. Confess your fear of man. Question your fear of man. And courageously confront your fear of man. Confess your fear of man. That is, confess it to the Lord. Be open with him about what you're afraid of. Bring it to your Lord. Question your fear of man. What exactly are you afraid of and why? You know, sometimes if you stop and you think about it and you question your fear of it, why am I afraid of this person? Why am I afraid of their reaction? Why am I afraid of not being received? If you question it and you dig a little deeper, a lot of times you'll find that your fears are nothing to be afraid of. And then lastly, courageously confront your fear of man. Remember Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. Be courageous. Take that step that you're afraid of. Courage is not the absence of feeling fear. That's not courage. Courage is not the absence of feeling fear. Courage is resolving to obey no matter what we feel. Fear. It's powerful and it's paralyzing. And all too often, we are caught in the grips of fear like a deer caught in headlights. All too often, we are caught not just in a moment of fear, but in a pattern of fear. And this can come from fearing the past, it can come from fearing the truth, and it can come from fearing other people. And how do we ultimately get to the root of this and overcome the fear in our lives? Well, we don't overcome fear by trying to get rid of our fear. 
We don't do that. We can't do that. We overcome our fear by redirecting our fear. Time and time again, the Bible says, fear the Lord. Matthew 10, 28 reads, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We overcome fear by placing our fear in the one who overcame all fears. Had Herod come to the right conclusion about Jesus, that Jesus is God, he would have overcome his fear. Had the Tetrarch recognized the true king, his fear would have dissipated. Even Jesus, when Jesus was in the garden, Matthew tells us he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He was distressed and anxious because he knew what was coming. The cross loomed over him like a dark shadow. Worse than that, the wrath of God was about to be poured on him. And yet, what did he say? Take this from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Even with the threat of the cross, Jesus submitted to the Father. Jesus was totally devoted to the Father. And by taking our fear and directing it to the Father, we too can say, your will be done and let our fear melt away. Friends, we need not fear the past. We need not fear the truth. We need not fear other people. We need only fear the Lord. I'm gonna leave you with one more verse. Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Pray with me. Father, we are a people prone to fear. Our hearts quake at the past, at the truth, and at others. Forgive us for giving in to these fears and help us redirect our fear to you. Help us, like our Savior in the garden, turn our eyes to the one who no longer judges the believer but instead, instead embraces them with love. Help us in our everyday lives to identify the fears that plague us and help us to trust you in each of these moments. May your church experience growth each day as fears fade and faith brightens. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.